This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm David Lipson, coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Tonight, why would some public servants, academics and business identities be urging ASIO to ease up on foreign spies? Also, three days into the new COVID booster regime, doctors are waiting for stock of the latest shots and patients are tossing up which one is best in their arm. If it's 6th of March, then I'm prepared to wait for what I perceive is a better vaccine. We're just waiting for more information and actually waiting for the ability to order it. And the largest fall in the real value of wages on record as a 3.3% rise is recorded for 2022, less than half of inflation. Have you had a raise? Yes, I have recently, 5%. That is the first raise in two years. And are you feeling a pinch? Every week I go to the grocery shop and it just gets more and more expensive. Yes, 2% which if you consider inflation, it's nothing. Thanks for your company. ASIO boss Mike Burgess has warned Australia faces an unprecedented assault from foreign espionage. Spies intent on stealing sensitive information on behalf of authoritarian regimes. In his annual threat assessment, the head of Australia's security agency also revealed he'd been directly pressured by public servants, academics and business people to ease up his focus on foreign influence. Bridget Fitzgerald reports. To anyone who believes foreign interference can be tolerated or ignored, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has this message. ASIO is doing the right thing and that they have the support of my government in all of their actions. During his annual threat assessment outline, Mike Burgess, the Director General of the Australian Security and Intelligence Organisation, revealed he's been pressured by certain individuals to ease up, as he put it, on foreign interference and espionage operations. I'm concerned there are senior people in this country who appear to believe that espionage and foreign interference is no big deal. It's something that can be tolerated or somehow ignored or safely managed. The ASIO boss says these kinds of comments have come directly from some public servants, academics and business identities. Mike Burgess says a hive of spies has been disrupted in Australia in the past year and the nation is facing an unprecedented threat from foreign espionage. James Patterson is the opposition's spokesman on foreign interference. Uh, Let's be really direct and honest here. No one is saying to him, go soft on Russian spies. No one is saying to him, go soft on North Korean spies. No one is saying to him, go soft on Iranian spies. Clearly what these people would have been saying is go soft on spies from China because they're worried about the bilateral relationship and particularly the economic and trade relationship. Vicky Xu is an investigative journalist and senior fellow at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. In general, the Labor government um, has indicated that Australia wants a better and nicer relationship with China um, for the purpose of, you know, going back to business as usual. So there's greater pressure on repairing the relationship with China, and that just means lowering our expectations on, you know, national security concerns, lowering our expectations on safeguarding Australian citizens and safeguarding Australian IP. Though to others, the issue isn't as clear-cut. James Lawrenson is the director of the Australian-China Relations Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. 
Yeah, look, I mean, you could imagine um, a business person with an exposure to China might be worried that if ASIO goes hard on a particular operation, then perhaps Beijing might respond by, you know, striking their country's, uh, their, their company's sales to China. But I found it that somewhat unusual because the fact is, is that the Australian business community has actually been very supportive of the government during this entire period. Um, even groups like the Australia-China Business Council are, in fact, you know, they, they make certain to, uh, that their position is that they do understand and support the Australian government. So I'm not entirely sure who specifically Mike Burgess was re- was referring to there. Whether Mike Burgess was referring directly to China or not is unclear. However, there are those who believe we shouldn't be so focused on China. Professor Jane Golley is an economist at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. Well, it's always the, the elephant or the dragon in the room when we talk about foreign interference, the question of whether we're just talking about China. Uh, I think it's really important that we don't talk about China. And I wonder where we draw the line. You know, if we have an American arms dealer coming in and talking to academics or to our government about why it might be necessary to expand our military capacity, is that not foreign interference simply because the US is an ally or should we be alert to that as well? Uh, definitely uh, looking beyond China and understanding what constitutes interference and when it's actually damaging to the national interest is something that we need to be thinking about carefully. That's Professor Jane Golley from the Australian National University, Bridget Fitzgerald, our reporter there. Well, tensions between Russia and the West have ratcheted up again with the presidents of the United States and Russia lobbing accusations at each other over the war in Ukraine. In a major speech to the nation, Vladimir Putin announced he was suspending a nuclear arms treaty with the US shortly before his security head met with China's foreign policy chief in Moscow and pressed for deepening ties. Meanwhile, in Poland, US President Joe Biden accused Mr Putin of wide-ranging atrocities in the ongoing conflict. So what are we to make of all of this just days out from the anniversary of the start of the war? Daniel Treisman is a professor of political science at UCLA. He's authored several books on Russian politics, presidents and power. Daniel Treisman, thanks for your time. What did Vladimir Putin's speech reveal about his state of mind in regards to Ukraine and also his position of strength or weakness? Well, it showed that he hasn't changed, that he's still determined to win at any cost. It did show a a slight recognition of the current situation. He said, more or less in, in slightly different words, he said, we will win step by step. We will carefully and systematically achieve our aims, right? Which does suggest he realizes that the attempt to go fast hasn't worked. And uh, he was being perhaps uh, more honest than he realized because they are fighting step by step. And then, of course, at the end, he threw in the point that uh, Russia is going to suspend uh, its participation in the last nuclear arms control agreement Mm. uh, that remained uh, in operation. What is the message he's sending by suspending that New START treaty? I mean, is there a practical concern in regards to Russia's nuclear weapons or is it just a, a blunt message to the United States and NATO? It's a bit hard to figure out because obviously at this point, with all the economic constraints, Uh, It seems uh, that this isn't a moment when Russia is seriously going to want to invest a whole lot more into developing a new generation of nuclear weapons. It feels to me as though he was just looking for some way, some 
non-irreparable way. He's only suspending participation, not completely walking out of the treaty. But he was looking for some way uh, to signal his discontent, to, to signal his disdain for the West and his refusal to cooperate. There's also been this suggestion this week from the United States that China is considering sending weapons to Russia. So we have President Xi, President Biden, President Putin, all in the fray, if you like, this week. How significant do you think this element is, that the China element at this moment in time? Well, I think if the Chinese do supply weapons to Russia, that will be a major change in the situation. And I think that could be very important. I haven't seen uh, clear confirmation of that report. It's a little bit hard to understand why she would be willing to go that far uh, at this point. Uh, it seems he has much more to lose than to gain by doing that. Let's remember Chinese trade with the US and Europe is about 10 times Chinese trade with Russia. So it's it's a little bit uh, befuddling and it may turn out just to be a rumour. Mm. The first year of this war has been tragic. Many tens of thousands dead and, and many, many more displaced and, and wounded. But Ukraine's fight has also been pretty inspiring to many around the world. What do you think the second year of this war looks like, though? Well, of course, it's impossible to predict how wars will go. They're inherently unpredictable. But we're in a grinding phase. Obviously, we've heard a lot about the Ukrainian offensive that's planned for a little bit later in the spring. The Russians are already engaged in their counteroffensive, which just isn't going very well, although at a very uh, significant human cost. Uh, so we may see more of this kind of grinding war of attrition, or it's possible that the Ukrainians will be able to break through and uh, regain some of the territory that they lost in the beginning of the war. Yeah, because it, it does feel like that step-by-step progress that you mentioned is happening at this moment. And, and that kind of grinding, that meat grinder style war of attrition is certainly something that Russia has employed many times in, in wars past. So does it have some sort of advantage there if it's far less concerned about human casualties than, than Ukraine, for example? Well, so far, at least, it hasn't actually resulted in, in big territorial gains. It's a very small territorial gains. And uh, they're losing huge numbers of men. But even using these uh, untrained conscripts and former inmates in this totally inhuman way, they haven't got very far. So I'm not sure that it does uh, really suggest that uh, Russia can do very well in the long run through this strategy. Mm. I think the, the Ukrainians, of course, are also taking casualties and both sides are getting getting drained. But I think what will really be decisive is the kind of weapons that uh, Ukraine gets uh, assuming that the West does continue to supply, that the ammunition doesn't run out, and that the West does supply the more powerful offensive weapons that Ukraine's been asking for. Daniel Treisman, great to talk to you. Thanks for that. My pleasure. Thank you. And Daniel Treisman is a professor of political science at UCLA. Most Australians are now free to book another COVID booster shot after the new eligibility rules came into force on Monday. We're being asked to consider if it's been six months since our last dose or infection. 
But patients are also asking if they should wait for the latest version of the vaccine that's due to arrive next month and how soon doctors and pharmacists will have it in stock. Isabel Masali takes a look. When Deborah found out she was eligible for a fifth COVID vaccine dose, she headed to her local pharmacy on the New South Wales mid-north coast. She thought she was asking a simple question. My first inquiry was at a chemist um, and that they really didn't know which bivalent would be available and they certainly weren't aware that there was a a subsequent bivalent that was possibly coming in as um, BA. As well as the different brands of COVID booster shots, some pharmaceutical companies have also made doses targeted at particular variants of the virus. The first one to be available, targeting more recent Omicron subvariants, is Pfizer's BA45. Moderna's version has also received approval from the Therapeutic Goods Administration. Millions of doses of the Pfizer shot are expected to arrive in early March. If it's now 6th of March, it is actually coming in on the 6th of March, then I'm prepared to wait for what I perceive is a better um, vaccine than um, going for it now. Deborah believes getting information on this has been difficult, and she's not the only one. Dr Mukesh Heikawal is with the Australian GP Alliance and the Australian Medical Association's Victorian branch. He says in previous vaccine rollouts, the information provided to GPs was remarkable, but now... The level of communication has dropped off significantly around, uh, and so uh, we are picking up bits of news from media that this new vaccine uh, will be delivered in March, but we've had no notification through the normal uh, official health channels. Yeah, we're just waiting for more information uh, and actually waiting for the ability to order it. A Department of Health spokesperson said information was sent to all primary care sites earlier this month and there were follow-up letters, with practices already given the opportunity to order. Dr Heikewal says ideally, if the BA45 bivalent vaccine was available now, then yes, you'd probably want to get the newer one. Right now, it's not that simple. It's like a piece of technology. Um... You've got a great um, mobile phone. You've got a a very good piece of technology that works for you. Um, If you wait six months, you might get another uh, benefit. Um, But in the meantime, you might have lost the ability to communicate and and, and do your work efficiently. So it's best to get something that's available. The Australian Technical Advisory Group on Immunisation advises that all currently available COVID vaccines are anticipated to provide benefit as a booster dose. However, bivalent mRNA booster vaccines are preferred over other vaccines. And these include the BA45, which is yet to arrive, as well as the Pfizer Original Omicron BA1 and Moderna Original Omicron BA1. The Department of Health says you should get a booster as soon as you are eligible, That's six months or more following the most recent vaccine dose or confirmed infection. The spokesperson went on to say providers should always advise patients of the type of vaccine being administered and there's no directive to run down existing supplies ahead of new vaccine deliveries. Earlier this month, PM spoke with Burnett Institute Director Professor Brendan Crabb about whether you should wait. It's a balanced decision. I would be seeking uh, medical advice on that. Um, My view is... I would personally wait 
a short period of time, um, especially at a lower COVID transmission period as we are in at the moment. Dr Deborah Burnett is a research immunologist at the Garvin Institute of Medical Research. She says it's important to start a conversation about how high risk you are. It is a really challenging situation. I think the key point to understand is that the vaccines that are available at the moment are all safe and they're all incredibly protective at reducing your your risk of severe disease. And so the difference becomes how effective they are at reducing your risk of infection. And the the current situation is potentially the, the newer bivalent boosters are likely to be slightly more protective against the current variants that are in circulation. But we just don't yet have the long-term data to know how modest or how dramatic this effect is. And so really what vaccine is most appropriate for you will come down to a conversation between you and your GP or you and your pharmacist. That's immunologist Dr Deborah Burnett from the Garvin Institute, Isabel Masali reporting. This is PM. I'm David Lipson. Ahead, as the Indian diaspora grows, there's evidence that caste discrimination is happening in Australia. This is a huge historical cultural baggage which is coming here. And if it gains ground in Australia, and if we are talking about racism and rights of people, we need to start thinking about caste as a big issue. Australian workers' wages rose 3.3% last year, the fastest increase in a decade, according to the latest official figures. But you'd be forgiven for not feeling any more wealthy because that figure, of course, is well below inflation, which sits at 7.8%. That means most Australians are getting an effective wage cut. In fact, it's the largest real wage decline on record. And as Nell Whitehead reports, wages growth is also slower than expected. If you're lucky, your paycheck will be getting bigger. Uh, in other words, it's pretty easy. Before COVID, like, there were so many people, so it was very hard to find a job. Now it's OK. But in Sydney, many workers argue that wages aren't rising fast enough. H- have you had a raise? Yes, 2%, which if you consider inflation, it's nothing. Look at electricity bill. I just got my gas bill for two months, $400 for four people. So if you count all that, pay is not enough. For some, salaries still aren't budging at all. I've been underpaid, if I'm honest with you. We're actually from Perth. Yeah. Um, I work at a cafe in the hills and um, I'm being paid about 2 or $3 underpaid and it's not going up. And yeah, I think it's kind of hard. Nationally, wages rose by 3.3% last year, according to ABS statistics. That's the highest rate in a decade, but below what economists expected and well behind inflation at 7.8%. And that means that really Australians' buying power is plummeting. The real value of wages fell by 4.5% in 2022. Dr Angela Jackson is lead economist at Impact Economics and Policy. It's not great news. So obviously, you know, we always like to see real wages going up. That means living standards are rising. And what we're seeing during this period is a huge drop in real living standards. Um, So it isn't easy to swallow and it isn't easy to accept. Um, And we know that a number of Australians are doing it a lot tougher than they were certainly 12 or 18 months ago. It's a lot harder to make ends meet. Mm. And are there any sort of bright spots in terms of sectors, industries that are faring better when it comes to wage growth than others? 
In terms of, you know, who's doing well, uh, it really is those parts of the economy where we know uh, there's been skill shortages or shortages of labour. So we can see stronger wages growth, um, particularly in the quarter in accommodation and food services. So those sort of tourism sectors are doing really, really well. And more broadly over the year, we can see, you know, strong growth uh, in those financial and insurance services, again, where we've seen some skill shortages um, and in construction and manufacturing. So only really public servants are not doing as well more broadly. So governments have maintained those pretty strict uh, wage controls. So public servants aren't doing as well as other sectors. But independent economist Chris Richardson says there's some good news in the slower than expected wage growth. In economics, there's always a risk that higher wages can fan more inflation, but there's no sign of that happening. The good news uh, is that um, the Reserve Bank is raising interest rates to fight inflation, partly because it's scared that wage growth will take off. Uh, There is next to no sign of that happening. There hasn't really been uh, much sign of that uh, at all at any stage. Uh, That would suggest, hopefully, that the Reserve Bank can calm down a little. Markets are expecting three more interest rate increases from the RBA before the middle of the year. But Chris Richardson says that may now change. In practice, uh, we are still looking at least at two of those rate rises. This wage uh, release today uh, would essentially say that that third interest rate increase is now looking rather less likely. If today's data means inflation is less entrenched than the RBA feared, he argues that's good news for Aussie's purchasing power. Look at it this way. The best way to get your wages stretching further right now is to have inflation come down as fast as possible. But to many Australians, it'll feel like there's no winning either way. Nell Whitehead reporting. First Nations groups across northern Australia are eyeing off the potential for new job opportunities stemming from the government's plan to allow major greenhouse gas polluters to offset their emissions with carbon credits. Indigenous rangers are hoping to convince regulators their efforts to reduce emissions on their land are worthy of payment through the carbon credit system. But sceptics of carbon offset projects are calling for much more scrutiny of the integrity of the system. Jane Barden reports. On his traditional country in the Arafura swamp of northeast Arnhem Land, ranger and senior traditional owner Dr Bulmania Otto Campion is proud of his work preventing wildfires. He liked small fires, moving on foot and by helicopter in the cool early dry season. The low-level flames reduce the fuel load, preventing big wildfires, which release more greenhouse gas later on. Bringing back our uh, traditional fire management on country by earning income from carbon, that's made uh, a big change because Yulmo people are really desperate for job employment. The Arafura Swamp Rangers and 30 other Indigenous groups across northern Australia earn carbon credits from the federal government and firms wanting to offset their emissions. They get about $30 per tonne for preventing over a million tonnes of carbon emissions a year, the equivalent of taking 400,000 cars off the roads. Whatever we, we make from our carbon, we give back to our people 
Is it really important to you and your group that you can show that there's a high level of integrity to your carbon credits? It's, it's really important, like there's a, a tool there that we can, we can measure how much fire we're making and it's a true evidence that we looked at, look at history. Dr Campion's group hopes the federal government's plan changes to rules which will require polluters to reduce or offset more emissions by 4.9% a year will provide more opportunities. The federal government's Chubb Review of Carbon Credit Integrity released last month found few problems with the system after major concerns about shonky credits were raised by whistleblowers. The review probed just four of more than 30 methods currently allowed. Some carbon credits researchers, including Polly Hemming from the Australia Institute think tank, want a new, deeper investigation of all the methods, including savannah burning. It's too big a risk to go at face value that they do have integrity. And if the carbon credits are of low integrity, no reduction in emissions is occurring at all. And the result is an increase in emissions. So I absolutely think that we should be paying ranger groups to carry out savannah burning. It's whether it's part of a market-based mechanism and whether the trade-off is that Santos or Woodside gets to keep emitting. Sissy Gore-Birch is the Deputy Chair of the Indigenous Carbon Industry Network, which represents many of the northern groups. Her Balangara Aboriginal Corporation manages Savannah Burning in the East Kimberley. And in relation to further scrutiny, she says bring it on. Indigenous projects are always under high scrutiny every day. So it's something that we continue to deal with. And yes, we want those fairness systems in place where there's scrutiny right across all this industry because we know that there are people out there for the wrong reasons. They know it's an opportunity to make money. So we definitely want that fairness right across the board. Bushfire specialist Dr Andrew Edwards from Charles Darwin University helped to develop the North Australia Fire Information or NAFI website that Indigenous ranger groups use to prove they've stopped greenhouse gas emissions. Fire mapping is undertaken every week and displayed on a map on, on the web for everybody to be able to see. With the satellite information, nobody can tell any lies. It's, it's actual. It really did happen. Bulmania Otto Campion hopes in future more impoverished homeland communities will be employed in this work. We can see a lot of disaster happening. We say well, let's let's fix him back that problem because she's hurting Mother Earth. She's hurting. That's Bulmania Otto Campion speaking to Jane Barden. You've no doubt heard of the caste system, a kind of social hierarchy assigned at birth that leads to some extreme examples of discrimination in parts of India and South Asia. Well, it's apparently happening elsewhere too, including here in this country, as the diaspora grows. In the US city of Seattle, caste discrimination has just been outlawed, as Alexandra Humphreys reports. Seattle's local council has made global headlines. It's added caste discrimination to the city's anti-discrimination laws. The council was urged on by groups in Australia. Filmmaker and academic Vikrant Kishore sent a letter of support on behalf of four organisations here. For us, it's too very important to be an ally for anyone working against, uh, you know, any kind of 
discrimination. So what happened in USA is very important. South Asian countries such as India have long had rigid social stratification, known as caste systems. India's was formally banned more than 70 years ago, but discrimination persists. Dr Kishore says as more people from South Asia migrate to Australia, caste discrimination could get worse. Caste-based groups and caste-based festivals are gaining ground where people are congregating in the name of their caste, they are showing the pride of caste. Whereas for oppressed caste, the problem is that there is no pride associated with that. So the oppressed caste names are used as slurs and abuses. And we have had cases from Nepalese community, from Indian community, from Pakistani community, people who have been, you know, ostracized, people who have been made to wait, you know, at the end of a community party to eat after everyone eats or they have not been given seats. He says it's often hidden and trauma prevents victims from speaking out. Parvan Luthra is the CEO of Indian Link Media Group. He's welcomed the Seattle Council's decision. I believe it's important to keep in mind that how this thing can escalate and as more and more migrants come into the country, perhaps we need to be a step ahead and uh, there's such strong uh, uh, racial discrimination laws and other discrimination laws in Australia that we can put caste discrimination on the agenda and nip any future issues in the butt. Beth Gaze is a law professor at the University of Melbourne. She says levels of caste discrimination are increasing as migration grows. It's a real concern if in Australia we have people who are um, treated within um, that community or within the country generally as being of lower caste and lower value than other people. So how do you think Australia should be tackling this? Well, I think the main move in this area is to have caste recognised as a form of racial discrimination. Um, And in a way, it sort of sits between racial and religious discrimination, which is why um, it's important to actually specify it as a specific ground on which discrimination is prohibited in Australia. Recognising it in law actually gives the opposition to it some legitimacy and says, as a society, we don't accept caste discrimination. And that presumably would give people a bit more confidence to actually bring it up and challenge it as well. Professor Gaze says bringing caste discrimination under anti-discrimination laws would provide victims with a way to seek a remedy by claiming compensation or reinstatement if their work has been affected. Alexandra Humphreys there. That's the program for today. Thanks for joining us on PM. I'm David Lipson. Good night. I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. Is the poker machine industry in Australia just as powerful as the American gun lobby? Some anti-gambling advocates say it is. Today, Insiders host David Spears on the latest political efforts to crack down on pokies. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.